This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. In part three of our California for Black Lives series, How We Fight, we discuss legislation, police abolishment, and black economic investment as just a few tools on the long list needed to dismantle structural racism and white supremacy. I'm Joshua Clark with the Look West podcast. I was fortunate to speak with Assemblywoman Sydney Kamlogger, representing California's 54th District, Dr. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, and Byron F. Wilson, founder of the How We Fight Initiative and headmaster of the Wilson Academy. Our discussion begins with Assemblywoman Kamlogger and her bill AB 2054, the Crises Act. She spoke with us from her Los Angeles area home. The bill, which has been approved in the Assembly and is now in the Senate, seeks to give communities the resources to help themselves, absent police involvement. When I was young, I was told by every adult that if I needed help, I was supposed to call the police or 911. What I find so compelling about this bill as I understand it uh, is that it seeks to give communities the resources to, when able, help themselves. Is that what this bill is about? The short answer is yes. So um, I think it's important, especially given the time that we're in, to state a few disclaimers based on what you just shared. Um, You know, Black people, like all people, have been told when there's a problem to call 911. Black folks are not um, sort of disproportionately adverse to the notion of public safety, but we certainly have a very different experience with law enforcement. In our neighborhoods, we still have a web of practitioners, experts, and just people who have the knowledge and the history of folks living in the neighborhood and their families and their circumstances who could come together to resolve or de-escalate or even solve many of the problems and emergencies that communities deal with. They just have never had the badge or the authority to do that. So how will this bill empower communities to be able to to do those things? This bill... Um, I want to say it's a pilot project. It would be a pilot project for three years. It would grant out funds to organizations, community-based organizations to do this work. And it would say that this group of organizations can act as community first responders. And it would empower communities to have the authority to take care of their own problems before calling in the police. You know, for hundreds of years, if we're gonna be clear, police have been in place to protect property. So once upon a time, property were people. Hello. And then we sort of moved into, you know, property not really being people according to the law, but they're still here to protect property. They're, They're not really here to get into the mix when it comes to personal problems or family issues. 
they're not really the ones that deal with um, substance abuse or mental health abuse. They're really not the ones who should be dealing with domestic or partner violence. They're really not the ones to be dealing with issues around sexual orientation. You know, those are issues that probably don't require the police because the tools that are in the toolbox of the police often are arrests and charges. You know, because I'm having a problem with my boo and I want my boo to stop doing whatever they're doing, doesn't mean I want my boo to be arrested. It doesn't mean I want to be arrested. It doesn't mean we want to have any kind of, we don't want that information on a file, you know, in his or her file, following that person for the rest of their life. And that's what happens when you involve the police. And it's this dark abyss that is the justice system, that are the court systems, that is foster care system, DCFS, probation, that um, impact people's ability to live and survive, to get loans, to get housing, to get work. Um, and so when you involve the police, you inadvertently set yourself on that path. As I understand it, the, the, it's structured in, in a way that would provide grants to uh, community organizations to do the work that you just spoke of. Correct. It says, if you're in a space where you're dealing with certain kinds of emergencies, you could apply for this grant, which would allow you to step in and respond to emergency situations in your community. So when law, when you call 911, you know, they, they route the calls, it goes to the dispatch, they send out an officer. So if an officer has just responded to an armed robbery with like five folks and, you know, with assault weapons and their adrenaline is up and the tactics that they're using are specific to that. And then they get back in the car and the next 911 is about, um, you know, the, the brother with special needs who's, you know, I don't know what they're doing, but someone's right. called on them. The challenge is that those officers who just responded at a level 10 level for an armed robbery are probably not really able, capable, willing, sympathetic to dialing down to level one to handle this next response. Right. I don't know that the training, you know, trains folks on law enforcement on how to do that. And maybe we shouldn't be asking them to respond to those kinds of calls. So this would say the group that knows how to deal with, you know, um, people of color who are also men, um, or young boys who are on the spectrum, you know, this group will deal with them, or this group will deal with the Spanish speaking or the Korean speaking, you know, boys or girls with special needs. So that's the concept behind it. I would imagine that people would be more responsive if you, uh, whether you're it'd be a person of color, the LGBT community, someone who was formerly homeless. If you're a homeless person and someone can connect with you to say, I've been there, let me help you, mm -hmm. that, it, that creates a relationship mm -hmm. that is uh, not rooted in antagonism. Yes, and equally so, I think you're more likely to 
de-escalate and find a resolution if you know that the person who's talking to you isn't trained to shoot. So maybe you can get into it. You know, no one says that every problem has to be resolved with people being calm, cool, and collected and civil. Sometimes, you know, people get hated. But the end result of, you know, us getting into a heated argument shouldn't be me all of a sudden in a chokehold or handcuffed, right? So it says that, and if I trust you, if I've called you and you come out, you may get in my face. You may call me some names. But if I know that your true intention is to de-escalate and find a resolution for this problem, then we may get into it, but I am... Uh, confident I have a degree of safety that the end result will be something that's good for me. Right. And, and chances are what, whatever comes of the interaction, chances are both parties will walk away and that's see right. tomorrow. That's right. Uh, I, I want to uh, read uh, uh, a section of the, the bill, mm -hmm. which I think is so, so important. And it speaks to the uh, crisis advisory committee. Mm-hmm. The office shall support an 11-member crises advisory committee. The members of that committee are selected by the governor, the chair of the Senate Committee on Rules, and the speaker of the assembly. And those members of that committee shall include emergency medical system professionals, mm -hmm. survivors of an emergency or crisis, mm -hmm. Representatives from a community organization providing direct services to vulnerable populations, mm -hmm. public health professionals, and representatives of an advocacy or community organizing group serving vulnerable communities. Amen, brother. Why was it so important? Why is it important to choose those specifically trained people, those groups, to be a part of that, that committee? It's important because public safety and restorative justice should not be mutually exclusive. You can have people involved in, committed to de-escalating and resolving problems that are also committed to restoring community health, public safety, trust, and healing. And those folks, those sort of um, defining representatives that you mentioned, I believe will be able to insert or infuse restorative practices um, you know, into this pilot program. This is actually more cost-effective <laughs> and efficient Mm -hmm. to have these community organizations. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Yeah, so we, um, so efficient, A, if, I don't know if you've ever called uh, 911. I have, generally when I've called, they say, is this an emergency? And I say, well, no, you know, nobody's been shot in the head or bleeding. And so they say, okay, we're gonna give you the non-emergency response which can take up to 45 minutes, an hour and a half. I mean, that's happened and you've actually had to call twice and then you've had to say it actually is an emergency because nobody's coming out. That is not efficient. That is not an efficient way to get resolution to a crisis or an emergency. Cost effective. You know, law enforcement departments spend so much money on lawsuits and workers' comp. 
They spend a ton of money on overtime. Um, you know, these 12, 12 hour shifts, the 24 off and on shifts cost cities money. Um, and oftentimes they're being called because there's a homeless person who's urinating or they have to go and check on the encampment or they're dealing with someone um, you know, who's intoxicated or high. Problems, crises, probably for that neighborhood or block or establishment or home, you know, may not necessarily uh, necessitate having law enforcement come out. But every time you call, it costs the city in which you live money. This will sort of allow you to not overwork and over-traumatize your law enforcement by limiting the kinds of calls that they get to the ones in which they're trained to handle, um, and then put this other bank of community first responders um, on the front lines instead to handle these other types of calls. Because the fact of the matter is there are many communities that do not trust the police. Um, and they're here for everyone. They just do not serve a zip code, a race, a gender. And so they have a responsibility, just like communities have a responsibility to work on the trust. So my hope is that um, that can happen because then police can kind of come in and out of spaces and actually meet the people and know who the people are that they're serving, right? That they're protecting not the people that they're monitoring. Um, and I also hope that this will, you know, as it limits the kinds of calls that come in, hopefully that can attack the biases that are in departments and within people to help folks have a different idea of who certain folks are, right? right? So if you're calling and you're always in this neighborhood and it's about all of these things, of course, that's going to, you know, exacerbate the biases you have about those people. So if this can mitigate that, then maybe it will help you recalibrate, you know, your biases and your perceptions about those folks that you're serving. Ooh, that would be amazing. Just to <laughs> the thought of that. It goes so deep to that bias. If you can have something where I don't, see you because I'm not getting called to stressful situations. I no longer see you as a stressor to me. That's right. That opens me up to see your humanity. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I try to say this as often as is appropriate. Um, and I say it because I want people to hear me and then believe it. But, you know, black men are beautiful. I appreciate it. <laughs> they're beautiful. They're, they're vulnerable and strong and resilient and vibrant and creative and funny and irritating and irresistible, you know, all at the same time. And it doesn't mean that you, you know, they, they never work your nerve, but they're, they're beautiful creatures. Um, you know, and, and God created the black man as a blessing. And so if we can create- Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. <laughs> so if we can create a bill that helps other folks who are not, you know, Black men or Black women see Black men 
in that way, then maybe fewer of them will get shot for running or sleeping or trying to fix a car or breathing or buying cigarettes or holding Skittles or just being black. Well, I certainly feel the same about uh, our black women. That is for sure. Um, (laughs) There have been, um, I'm sure you're aware, there have been talks. um, They started locally. They're now nationally and have gone internationally to both uh, defund and in other discussions, abolish the police. Uh, how does the Crises Act, if at all, fit in with any either of those two uh, discussions? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it neither defunds police in those spaces where grants would be awarded, nor does it abolish the police in those um, districts or counties, I'm sorry, where the grants would be awarded. Uh, police are funded through city departments. Um, And so those are conversations that cities have to have about how they want to um, have public safety implemented. This bill is a, it's a state bill and it says, let's look at some alternatives to how responses to emergencies occur. What are your thoughts on uh, the concept of defunding the police? I believe in um, I believe in public safety. I, I actually do believe in police. I don't know that I believe in the kinds of police forces that we have now. You know, now actually for some time when officers were in their training academy and they were doing the shooting practice and you would have the thing, you know, the practice, the target which mm-hmm. that you shoot at, they were always black. So in your bias of like when you pull the trigger how to get ready the thing that you've been trained to see is this black figure um what i do know is that even up until 2016 100 percent of all the dog bites coming from the la sheriff's department canine unit were only of black and brown people a hundred percent a hundred percent a hundred percent what i do know is that um, black folks get charged um, two and a half times more likely they, than, than others. They're stopped two times more likely. They're, uh, 40% of the folks on probation and parole, their sentences are longer. Uh, they get no bail, um, 30% more. And when they do 35% of the time, it's higher bail. There are 50% of the folks who have life sentences um, you know, or on death row. I say all of that to say, I am not interested in funding the continuation of those statistics. And those statistics, while they are not only about the police, they start with the police. Because when the police stop you, when they arrest you, when they take you in to get booked and charged, and then you go down this chute um, that's dark and long-term, um, the numbers are disastrous um, for, for Black Americans. We thank Assemblywoman Kamlager for her continued work in moving California forward. Years before defund the police became a global outcry, Dr. Melina Abdullah, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, and countless other organizations worked tirelessly to change the city's budget and prioritize the people over police. Today, July 1st, is uh, Budget Day. 
Yes. Uh, you, you and so many others have been working tirelessly. And, and I, I, to start off, I'd just like to get an idea of how you're feeling today. Um, we are feeling encouraged. Um, yesterday, we took some huge steps forward. We got um, the budget cut of the LA school police by 35% or $25 million. Um, we're looking at shifts in policy that'll remove police from places they don't belong in the first place, which eventually will have a budget impact on LAPD. Um, and then we know today we're looking forward to city council confirming the $150 million cut to the LAPD budget, um, which is not near enough, but is a step in the right direction. Um, so we're encouraged by um, how things are moving and we're committed to continuing the fight until we win all of what we imagine. Uh, you, along with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, has been doing uh, the work um, and has been championing the cause of of defunding the police since 2015. It's you know it's it's become uh, it's under the lens of popular culture and, and and mass media now. But you've been doing the work for uh, over five years. So I'm curious, what if anything is different about this particular moment that we're in uh, than in past years? So we were saying defund the police. Um, you know, back in 2015, 2016, 2017, that was thought of as something that was a little far-fetched, right? When we say defund the police, um, a lot of folks would go, well, what do you do without police? And we'd of course couple it and pair it with um, reimagining public safety, reminding folks that for black people, you know, our safety has never been reliant on policing, in fact, you know, we've been pushing it, but when George Floyd was murdered, you know, it felt as if um, the world had cracked wide open and people all of a sudden began to understand that we cannot reform or tinker around the edges of a policing system that was intentionally and deliberately designed to build these outcomes. And so Manning Marable, who wrote the phenomenal book that everybody needs to read, many books, but uh, my favorite of his books is How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. And in that text, um, he talks about these systems as not being something that were just stumbled into, that they were deliberate and intentional. And policing is one of those systems. Um, and so you know, we've been saying that it's not enough to reform, but I think that when we saw um, the nine minute long murder of George Floyd, um, and we saw the look on the face of um, Derek Chauvin who stole his life, right? Um, we could see that history, that trajectory of policing as um, descending from slave catching. We could see you know, what, it, what is meant when we say, why we have to say defund the police, why we have to think in terms of abolition rather than just reform, because as ridiculous as it would have been to say just reform chattel slavery, that's the same ridiculousness that um, we hear when we say reform the police. So we have to defund the police we have to dismantle the police and we have to reimagine public safety. When someone asks you what D 
defund the police means, what do you tell them? Um, we tell them that it means just what it sounds like, right? Defund the police means take away their budgets. It means, you know, um, Dr. Julianne Malveaux, who's one of our most brilliant economists on the planet, um, you know, she says that uh, budgets are a statement of our priorities. They're um, ethical documents. I never understood the confusion because I heard, you know, well, the the terminology needs to change and people, no, it defund, take away funds. It's, <laughs> right? ve it's very, very easy to understand. to understand. Exactly. What is the, if any, what is the difference in, in defund, in defunding and abolition? So defunding puts us on the road to abolition, right? Defunding um, can uh, go all the way from, you know, cuts like we just won to um, two budgets. So we just won this very significant cut to LA school police, um, but it can go all the way to abolition, right? It's part of the same continuum. And so you can start by cutting back police, um, but really, you know, when we talk about abolition, you're talking about two things. One, doing away with the system of policing as we know it, um, but also uh, reimagining is fundamental to abolition. So if you think about Mama Harriet Tubman and David Walker and Frederick Douglass and Henry Highland Garnett, it wasn't just them imagining the end to chattel slavery, not just them saying, let's beat back chattel slavery. And I'm using chattel slavery as an example because that's the space that most people know in terms of abolition, right? Um, what were they imagining? They were imagining freedom. They were um, in their collective imaginations, building a world where black people could live and walk freely. And so it didn't just stop at, you know, we don't want um, black people to um, be dehumanized through the system of chattel slavery. It's what does it mean for us to step into our full freedom and full humanity? We know that education, housing, healthcare, transportation, and a myriad other aspects uh, uh, of life uh, have been defunded for decades. Mm. And I, I don't see the outrage around that. You're reminding me of a tweet by Layla Hathaway that said exactly the same thing, right? Why is it so hard to grasp defunding the police, they've been defunding your kids' educations for, for years, you know? And so um, I think that's absolutely right, that why are we not outraged that they've been defunding um, education, they've been defunding um, access to healthcare, they've been defunding environmental protection, right? They've been defunding all of the things that actually bring safety to our communities. And then when they say, when we say, defund the police, um, they want us to be outraged at that, even though policing does not keep us safe and is harmful um, to Black communities. I think that um, the outrage has been stoked by those who have very narrow interests in maintaining the current system of policing, right? It's important that we not be outraged at the defunding of police, but think about that when you talk about um, budgeting, 
it's also a zero sum game. So as we've poured more money into police, there's a relationship, there's a correlation between more money into police and less money for mental health resources, more money for police and less money for parks. Um, every single study tells you that people who are from communities, who are employed as interventionists, are much more effective in um, stopping violence and stopping crime in communities than our police. And we did a study, an uh, informal study, um, um, <laughs> just kind of a budget analysis um, back in 2016, where we found that in Los Angeles, you could hire three intervention workers, double their current salaries, and pay them full benefits, which they weren't receiving, for every single officer. So every cop, could have meant three interventionists at double their salary with full benefits. Uh, the most recent People's Budget of Los Angeles allocates approximately 46% to universal aid and crisis management, which includes housing, food, health care, and emergency relief. 28% to built environment, which focuses on physical infrastructure like public transportation, libraries, and parks. 25% to reimagined community safety, focusing on restorative justice practices and community-led safety, and just less than 2% on law enforcement and policing. Uh, how did the people's budget arrive at these numbers for allocations? So what's really important to understand is these are not numbers that we came up with as the People's Budget LA, which is a coalition that was brought together by Black Lives Matter. Um, we, you know, of course, agree with those numbers, but we launched a survey, um, 25,000, now more than 25,000 Angelinos responded to the survey about where they wanted their resources to go. And so this is the, the, the expression of 25,000 survey respondents. Um, it's not our you know, imposition on you know, what we think the budget should be spent on. This is the actual responses of Angelinos. So the responses that you read and those numbers that you read where Angelinos wanna spend, I believe the exact number is 1.64% of the total budget on traditional approaches to law enforcement, which includes not just police, but also traffic enforcement and prosecution, right? Um, you know, that's their approach. They think that it's much more effective to have community care teams and, you know, um, transformative justice practices and healing circles than it is to have police in our neighborhoods. Um, and if anybody is interested in seeing the data and playing with the data and seeing how it breaks out, they can go to peoplesbudgetla.com and you can actually see it by council district, you can um, see it by race, you can see it by gender, um, and then you can say, well, what do black women think, right? You can play with the data and really see how does it break down. What's interesting is that across the board, um, regardless of demographic, right? We're really seeing almost everyone, no, not almost everyone, everyone 
say that we don't need to be spending anywhere near what we spend on police. I think the highest number um, that any group wants to spend on traditional approaches to public safety, which are police, traffic enforcement, and the city attorney's office, the prosecutor, the local prosecutor, um, is around 7% is the max that any group wants to spend. And then you have, for Black gender nonconforming people, 0%, um, <laughs> which was a really interesting number. And you know, speaks to the idea that those who are most um, oppressed by policing are the ones who say we want to spend less on policing. Uh, I believe you said in, in excess of 25,000 people now have responded. That, I believe, is more than uh, the uh, number of respondents in the CNN 2016 presidential exit poll. Absolutely. And, you know, just as an additional piece, we remember that the CNN exit poll is a national poll for 25,000 people to participate in a local poll is really an unheard of number. Um, and so, and we got these 25,000 people participated in less than 30 days. Um, so that is just a tremendous number. By training, my doctorate's in political science. And the work that we do around democracy, I don't call myself a political scientist because I teach Pan-African studies. I'm a Pan-Africanist, but my training is in political science. So I've studied a lot around questions of democracy. And um, one of the things that comes up is this concept of participatory, uh, per participatory budgeting, right? It's a best practice, right? The idea that communities come together and say, where do we want our budget to go is absolutely a hallmark of democracy, right? Democracy is supposed to be ruled by the people. And at the very least, even when you're talking about Republican forms, and I'm not talking about the Republican party, but like representative forms of democracy, um, those folks who are in office are still supposed to engage deeply with their constituents. And after we put our numbers out and did this um, survey, we had a lot of, or several um, council members, city council members in Los Angeles who wanted to dispute the numbers that we put out. So they put together kind of hurriedly their own surveys to try to get different numbers um, of from the white affluent folks in their district. What's interesting is they did not get different numbers, right? They were looking for different mm. numbers, but they didn't get different numbers. How does the People's Budget of LA compare to Mayor Garcetti's proposed budget? Um, there is no comparison, right? The mayor put out a budget plan that um, intends to spend 54% of the city's general fund on LAPD. This is not, you know, that category, when I said our category includes police traffic enforcement and city attorney, he's not talking about those other two areas. He's saying 54% of the city's general fund straight to LAPD. I want our, our listeners to, to know um, the unrestricted funds that the, city, that the city's general fund is made up of um, 
it can be used for any governmental purpose at the discretion of the mayor and the city council. They are thus unrestricted funds. So that means that 54% that is going to police is a choice. Absolutely. And that's what's meant when we say budgets are a statement of your priorities. They're moral documents. When the budget goes through and it's we we already know it's it's not going to look how we would want it to what can we still do what are our next steps we have to continue to make demands to direct um funds to the things that actually make communities safe especially black led organizations because what's starting to happen now is a scramble for you know these large nonprofits are scrambling and saying, oh, you know, uh, we see money coming and they're jockeying for position. We really need them to go to where they're needed most, which is black led organizations. Um, and we can all be a part of that work. Um, we also need to think about already need to start thinking about next budget season. Um, how do we make it part of the political calculation? of whoever is holding office in our cities in Los Angeles, of a mayor who's termed out but who has aspirations for higher office, right? How do we say, look, if you really want to become governor or a senator or in his, you know, um, imagination, he's becoming president, right? If you really want to become any of these things, you're going to have to listen to the voices of the people. And we have to start doing that work right now. As mentioned, on Wednesday, July 1st, the Los Angeles City Council did vote to cut the L.A. Police Department's budget by $150 million. Dr. Abdullah is a champion for all those whose humanity has been relegated to the fringes of society by those in power. It was an honor to speak with her. Byron F. Wilson's How We Fight initiative is guided by their two-point plan, which encourages black people to only purchase food from black-owned restaurants and exercise their legal right to bear arms. I spoke with him from his home office in Georgia, where he shared with us, the plan is only the beginning. What is How We Fight trying to achieve? So essentially, the reason these things keep happening, and when you, when you see these, these murders alive for the world to see, particularly when we're talking about uh, police officers and people pretending to be police officers by taking the law in their own hands and and murdering unarmed black men and women. The reason this continues to happen uh, with with no convictions is because we have yet to provide any actual consequences. You know, you can provide consequences one of two ways. There either has to be a physical consequence, right, which means, you know, you have a fear of physical repercussion, or there's got to be some legal consequence, or i.e. economic consequence, because the economic consequence can create the legal consequence. So how we fight focuses primarily on creating that economic consequence. Now, we do advocate exercising your constitutional right to bear arms, because I do think there's got to be a human element of self-preservation. I want to get into the the economic uh, portion of the of the two point plan specifically. Um, and it, it focuses on, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it focuses on black people only buying food from black-owned 
restaurants. And I want to know why you decided to focus on the food industry. There's a greater concept. And you see a lot of these initiatives about the blackout day or whatever, a blackout week. I don't discourage those things. There's one thing you never want to do is shut somebody down when they're trying. So I don't discourage it. But the bottom line is that's just not enough. I mean, these corporations were able to withstand COVID-19. Do you really think a day is going to change anything? It's not. So so this, it, it, this is not a quick fix situation. I understand very clearly that it's a marathon. So what we're trying to do is make things become habitual. And then once they're habitual, now you're not thinking about it. These things need to change permanently. This is just like you want to lose weight and you try a fad diet. I don't need a fad diet. I need you to change your lifestyle. That's how you're going to get the body you're looking for. We have to learn to change our lifestyle. So that initiative we started with because it's something that everybody can do. I mean, if you think back, the first time someone gave you money is probably so that you can get yourself something to eat. And so I just thought it was it was far reaching. It requires some effort, but it's feasible. And it, and it and also it's stimulating. So it's bringing people together, but it's stimulating black economies. And that's what we're trying to do. If, if, if we don't if we don't disband the idea that supporting ourselves is negative and separatist, we're never going to get what we want out of America. People have already given us a blueprint. You can see successful communities, successful ethnicities. They do that unapologetically. Uh, but they don't have the same history and present here in America that we do. The plan also states that this is uh, not a boycott. It's not. It's not a boycott. And what, what makes this not a boycott? So a boycott, first of all, is temporary. A boycott is saying... I'm going to punish you for your behavior, and I'm going to seek to change that behavior through a temporary restriction of your good or service. That is not what I am suggesting. I am saying, first of all, this is not temporary. I'm saying we have to change our minds and change our approach permanently. See, even a boycott, there's this misconception that you're going to be uncomfortable for a short period of time and people are going to change. I don't know how you would expect to change 400 years of oppression from a day of not buying things. That's just completely irrational. That's like somebody that's gained 300 pounds and you're going to not eat fast food on Friday and now you've lost 300 pounds. That doesn't make sense. You didn't gain 300 pounds in a day. So it's going to take more than a day to fix it. Why was it important to make a distinction, what I think is a very important distinction, between black and minority? Yes. Because it's like it's a bad word to say black. I don't know if you you had this experience, but a lot of us, our parents, they would whisper the word black or not say it around white people. Like it's a bad word. I, it's incredible. So minority, here's the thing. And you got to watch because a lot of people are, are doing this. You know, minority is not the same as black. Minority just means that you're not white. So if we want to build our communities, we have to be specific because, to be honest, if you are in most black communities, particularly lower income black communities, all these corner stores and things, they're not black owned, but they are minority owned. So we wouldn't be doing anything different if I said minority owned because we're already supporting everybody but ourselves. We're already doing that. 
But you know what? We've tried other things. Like, how long are we going to march? I'm not, and, it's, and you have to be careful with that because I'm, I don't want to disrespect anyone. Marching was just the beginning, though. People missed that. I, and, and, and they knew that in the 60s. They knew that marching was the beginning of it. The, this, this next step was always economic empowerment. And then that led to legislation. Even when I, my other point, when we talk about a boycott, do you know that Montgomery bus boycott? That was what, 382 days? That's, that's over a year that people did that. But it's like now no one really wants to be uncomfortable. How long should we expect black people to only buy uh, food from black owned restaurants? Is it a year? Is it five years? I, I can tell you there's a difference between expectations and hope. My hope would be that it becomes a long term thing. Um, I think for some people, they'll fall off in a couple months. It's just human nature. I think that there are going to be some people who fall off, but some people will permanently now when they go to eat, they'll say, nah. And that's the point. We're trying to make it habitual. We want it to last long enough to where it becomes a habit. And then people start to think about, okay, well, who does my dry cleaning? Well, who's cutting my grass? That, that's the whole point. It, it's, we just wanted to start there. So I don't know about the restaurant portion because I'm hoping that it evolves to a lifestyle. I think for a lot of black people, this will be permanent. I, I do. I, I, I really do believe that. If I didn't believe that, then I wouldn't be doing it. But obviously some people will fall off. But I don't, I think this is maybe a precipice for us. That's why I've got to hope. The second portion of the two-point plan is, as you said, um, there has to be a physical consequence. Yeah. And part of that is uh, you are uh, strongly in favor of every black American legally, emphasis on legally, arming themselves. You know, the bottom line is, had Ahmaud Arbery been strapped, maybe we don't know who he is because it ends differently. He was murdered on the streets because he was unable to defend himself against people who were armed. Period. And so at some point, I think it's not only irrational, but un-American to not defend yourself. I mean, I, you, the number one thing you have as a human is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And life was first. You have the right to life. Life. So if I'm going to be threatened with a firearm. I need to defend myself with a firearm. That's all we're saying. You know, people always talk about Chirac, as it were, and they say, how can we complain about white officers killing us when look at Chicago? And, you know, and, and I actually talked to an OG Crip about that. Of course, in Chicago, you got to talk to GDs as well. You know, I talked to them, and, and you know what they say is, well, who taught us the violence? Fix your, fix your isht. That was the quote, actually, the literal quote today. Why don't they fix their isht first? Which is to some degree fair. Do we need to stop the killing? Yes. But to see, killing is about, is about proximity. White people kill white people. Like everybody kills the people that they're closest to. So we live in these demographically concentrated areas. You know, black people live in groups. We're not, we're not really that spread out. 
We only in about 10 places. <laughs> and my my thing is, I don't know how you feel, but but as you said, black folks need to stop killing black folks 100%. However, <clears throat> there, us doing that, one is proximity, two, it is a symptom. It is not the cause. We do that, many of us do that because we don't have access to fair health care, education, uh, uh, job opportunities, business loans. If we had access, equal access to those stuff, we wouldn't have the need to rob from each other or kill each other. That's what I'm saying. Nobody ever wants to talk about the causes. They just want them to stop killing each other, which they should. But are you really examining why? Why are they killing each other? I want to get into um, the demands that you have. And I'm, I'm going to read all three. Sure. Number one, uh, you demand convictions and equitable and appropriate prison time for all officers involved in the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and all parties involved in the lynching of Ahmaud Arbery. Two, you demand legislation that ensures independent review of public safety officers. Number three, you demand a modification to the standards by which officers can be prosecuted. So if your demands, which I've just read, if your demands aren't met, what should the consequences be? Let me tell you what the point of those demands is. First of all, when you talk to somebody who's in a position of power, and, and as much as we hate to say it, you, you know, white America in this regard and the justice system in particular are in positions of power. If they weren't in positions of power, we wouldn't be using all our energy trying to figure out how to stop it. We would just stop it. And it wouldn't happen in the first place. You wouldn't have to walk around with signs up talking about your life matters if we were in a position of power. So that's the bottom line. When somebody comes in my office, right, and one of my, my business and asks me anything, at the end of the day, what do you want? So the first thing is I have to tell you what, what is it that I want? Now, you're either going to do it or not. And then I'm going to respond. So, see, a lot of this is another thing is showing black people. See, you have to you have to expose someone's condition. It's just like I don't know if you experienced this, man, experienced this, man. But um, it's just like, let's say you in a household, a single mother household and the father isn't doing anything. Like most black women, they don't want to tell you how bad your father is. They're not about that. Right. But you just keep asking and they get tired and they say, fine, ask your daddy for it. Now, the reason she's saying that is because she's going to let you see for yourself who your daddy is. And you ask your daddy and he doesn't do it. Now you know, you're like, dang, I asked me. He ain't. See, you get to a point to where, that's what I'm saying with these demands. Ask your daddy. Because then when you ask your daddy and they don't do it, then you're going to say, oh, I see what daddy is. See, I'm not an idiot. I know very well, and it's not to be negative, I know very well the chances of the outcomes, of all of these outcomes coming up in our favor. Very low, like close to zero. I get that. Why? Because I'm a numbers guy, and based on probability and statistics, I cannot in good faith say that we have a good chance for these things to occur. Just on numbers, just on numbers, because nobody's ever been convicted. None of them are going to prison. So I don't understand how I, as a numbers guy, my point is, I'm going to let you go ask your daddy. And then when your daddy say the answer, now I can say, now you see, now you understand why I was saying what I was saying. That's, that's what it is. I, I hope, I hope your daddy give you the money. And just right. so we clear, who 
So, so all the listeners know who is the daddy in this circumstance. Unfortunately, the daddy in this circumstance is, is the Justice Department. It, it it really is. It's the legal system of the United States of America. I believe everyone should vote. And I believe that if you don't vote, you shouldn't complain. <clears throat> I also believe, as the plan says, and I quote, but the reality is voting will not solve our problems. Do black people in this country assign too much power and responsibility to voting as a pathway to change? I'm going to take it a step further. We respond. We assign too much responsibility to politics in general. And when I say politics in general, I mean primarily whether we're Democrat or Republican. I really hate to break these things down because it makes it seem like I'm diminishing the significance of voting and I'm not. Even if you only vote out of respect for the people who died for you to have the opportunity to do so, you should still do it. But what I'm saying is it's easy. It, it doesn't require any education or certification. You go and type, uh, punch a screen. And most people don't even know what the people stand for. They just, they just ticket vote. They just, you know, they just say party ticket vote. I'm Democrat. I vote for all Democrats. There's a lot of people who just go in and only vote for a president because they say, I don't know who these other people are. If you had a black president and you still had officers killing us, what makes you think that this problem can be solved at the ballot box. What you got to understand about America, and this can be a tough pill to swallow, you can change the aesthetics in a house, you can change the curtains, you can change the paint, you can't change the foundation. And America is a house built on racism. Nobody gives up an advantage. You find me one example where somebody willingly gave up an, an advantage. If you look at sports, if I'm winning by 30, Right? NBA playoff game. I'm winning by 30. And you say, hey, man, y'all up 30. Could you, um, you know, stop shooting? Could you um, take all your good players out? Because, you know, who's doing that? So we as black people have to get it out of our heads that white people are going to give up their natural advantage. I, whether you like it or not, white privilege is obviously real. How can you deny white privilege when... We were just always fighting just for the same rights that you had. How could you possibly deny white privilege when I couldn't vote? Like, what are you talking about? Like, obviously it exists. But like, factually, legally, you legally had white privilege by definition. So I don't think America wants that. This is something we would have to take. And that's what I try to get black people to understand. Stop asking. You, this is something that no one will give up. Would you give that? If it was the other way around, black people wouldn't change it. Change is needed. And we hope these discussions will inspire further conversation and action that will create that change. Thank you to Byron F. Wilson. And thank you again to Assemblywoman Sydney Kamlager and Dr. Melina Abdullah. Continue to listen to the Look West podcast for more on our series, California for Black Lives. I'm Joshua Clark with Look West. Thanks for listening. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. When you think of California and politics, remember to look west.